and welcome to Tea or Books. My name is Rachel. I'm Simon. And this is our 113th episode in which we will be talking in the first half about um, do we like books that are based on other stories such as myths, legends, fairy stories, etc. Um <laughs> Something I may not have been put through, but we'll get there. Or not. I make this a, a blog post title. It's going to be very long. <laughs> I'll find some way to summarise that. That's a job for later. Um, and in the second half, we're going to be talking about two books that are both very long. Um, Ruth by Elizabeth Gaskell and South Riding by Winifred Holtby, which on the surface don't seem to have all that much in common. But as always... We will find those connections. So, we will. Simon, um, how are you? What are you reading? What's going on? Uh, yeah, I'm doing well, thanks. We had some lovely feedback on our last episode. People really liked us going through our favourite books of 2022, and quite a few people shared uh, their favourite books that they'd read because of us, so that was nice. Yeah. Um, and Sarah mentioned a book that she thought we'd be interested in. Let me see if I can find it. Um, Mad, Bad or Sad, A History of Women and Mind Doctors by Lisa, I'm going to say, yeah. there we go, I have know. you read it? Of course I have. <laughs> so sorry, i never heard of it. Um, I read it when I did my Masters in Victorian Studies. It's a really, really interesting um, look at the history of um, asylums and mental health treatment for women. Depressing, but um, yeah, fascinating. It's another doorstopper. But well worth reading. Yeah. Well, thank you for that suggestion, Sarah. Rachel didn't need it, but I, I've had it now. Uh, <laughs> and thank you for the people who got in touch about my eyes. They're doing much better than last time, which is wonderful for me uh, and for those around me, I guess, who don't have to deal with me, me moping around so much. But yeah, I've been able to do reading again, which I, yeah, I had about a month where I couldn't really read books and that was, it felt like an eternity. Um, so I'm very glad to be back to the printed page. Uh, and the printed page that I'm currently reading is an Elizabeth Goode novel yeah. um, called The Bird in the Tree. Do you know that one? I do. And I read it and didn't like it. And I was really sad. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, what did you not like before I say why I am liking it? Do you know what? I think I found it too preachy in the end. Oh, okay. And I didn't uh, um, the older woman. I just found her really judgmental. Um, yeah, I guess she is, but I quite like that. <laughs> I don't know. She's very honest about it. Um, yeah, for those who don't know, it's the first in a trilogy, uh, and it's basically about uh, three generations of a family and secrets that come out, but that makes it sound very sensational, and it's actually a very gentle and actually very slow novel, but I quite, I'm quite enjoying the slowness of it. A lot about the beauty of the countryside, a lot about the beauty of uh, friendships and relationships, and um, yeah, just a very gentle novel. And Elizabeth Gouge is often a little, I say often, I've only read three books by her, but the ones I've read often, I guess moralistic, but in a way that I don't mind, but uh, it what your appetite for that is. Yeah, I mean, I think some of her books are less heavy-handed than others, um, but that one I did, I got to the end and I was like, look, just stop whacking me around the head. I mean, I get it. <laughs> I got it after like the second chapter. Um, but I did things <laughs> of, the, of the countryside and everything were, were really beautiful. I wanted to like it much more than I did. And actually, I will say this, 
I left it at my sister's holiday home in Devon. And I was like, I'll pick it up again next time I come down. Next time I went, a guest who had stayed in my sister's holiday home had stolen it. <laughs> it's a beautiful old back cover with a with this dust jacket that was actually worth quite a lot of money. And I was not happy about that. And I said that to my sister. I was like, somebody knew what they were looking for when they stole that book. Well, it sounds like it's gone to a better home. <laughs> so we might appreciate it. Somebody a book thief. Confession time, Rachel, it was I. It wasn't. It wasn't really. I've had this book for fifteen yeah, years, and I'm finally, uh, finally picking it off the shelves. There we are. Um, if you're listening, you... and it was you who stole my copy of um, *The Bird and the Tree*. I forgive you. Well, that's nice. Yeah. Uh, I know. I said to go closer to the mic, but maybe don't. Actually, it's picking up a bit of disturbance now. So just could do whatever you were doing before. <laughs> I'll make it work in the edit. Well, I'm also eating biscuits. Is that all right? Oh, that's probably what it is. <laughs> 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 for heaven's sake <laughs> oh, i have to leave this in because people are such a fan of you multitasking <laughs> uh, you don't get this on radio for um yeah what, what are you, how are you what are you reading i'm okay i've been very busy um and somehow i've been reading south riding for a month i don't know why it's <laughs> you've already read it as well well, no, and I'm still not finished. Um, <laughs> still 100 pages from the end. It's like the, just the book that never ends. But yeah, I've been reading that and um, literally nothing else. It's been a very quiet reading month. And I've been, I'm actually in one of those, you know, those sort of reading funks you get into where you just don't fancy anything. Hmm. And you just, I just don't know what to pick up. Something I've definitely, one side effect of my eyes being really bad for a while. And uh, so when I was starting reading again, I could only really read for about 10 minutes a day. And it made me have no tolerance for something that I wasn't loving. It's like, if, I'm, if I've only got 10 minutes a day to read, it's going to be the best book possible. So I was discarding things left, right and centre. Um, and maybe maybe that's a lesson to us. Mm. Um well, South Riding, we don't need to spoil yet uh, what you because obviously we'll be talking about that later. Um, so I guess we'll just rush straight into the topic. Now, I got a voice note from Rachel as she was racing somewhere, and I assumed it would be her saying, sorry, I forgot that I am, I know, the lead violinist in the Philharmonic Orchestra tonight or something. So, But, but no, it was not a cancellation. It was an idea. Yes. and Go for it. I mean, I wouldn't call it a, a fully formed idea, but I thought, <laughs> here's something that I don't think we've discussed before, which is books that are retellings or re-craftings or adaptations of existing stories. So I was specifically thinking about, there seems to be a spate of, at the moment of books that are retellings of Greek myths, for example. Um, so I was thinking like Pat Barker, The Silence of the Girls, um, there's a, is it the Song of Achilles? Is that Madeline Miller? It is, is yeah. Um, but also there is quite a large trend as well of taking fairy stories and often fairy stories from non-British cultures and and sort of crafting a new story with that as its kind of thread. So I wondered, you know, how we felt about books like that that are, are so deeply based on stories that are existing and that haven't been created by the author and often try and tell them from a different perspective maybe than the one we used to and whether we like them or not 
So I'm going to say, Simon, why don't you kick us off with your thoughts? Lovely. I don't have to get a start. Um, and it seems like one of those topics that we would have done, but I I, don't, I couldn't find any evidence that we had. If we have, I apologise. And hopefully... Yeah, I can't remember. I'm sure no one else does. Well, no. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I was... When you mentioned those, first of all, I was reminded that I borrowed Cersei, which um, is a retelling of something, I forget, um, from my boss in... February 2020 so obviously we all went into lockdown I didn't I didn't go back to the office for over a year and I'd read one and a half pages by the time I went back <laughs> and that is as far as I got because I realized I did I mean I didn't think I wanted to read it and I didn't enjoy it at all people will be well I didn't enjoy it. I only read a page and a half before I gave up but <laughs> people will be familiar with uh my take on not liking historical fiction and what's more historical fiction than mythology fiction yeah so uh, if it that's not really i mean i guess it's a retelling but it doesn't it wasn't really as far as i could tell taking it out of the time so if something's greek mythology and set in ancient greece i think i'm probably not going to be interested what does interest me much more is the idea of retelling something like that in modern times mm-hmm. uh but, you know sometimes it's done very loosely sometimes it's done much more closely and if we go yeah i guess you could go broad to fairy tale mythology retellings of many sorts one of my absolute favorites is the snow child by owen ivy yeah. which uh, was a very big novel not, well not in length it was quite a small novel but it was very popular i don't know 10 years ago eight years ago uh set and written in alaska i feel like i've talked about it on the podcast before but, uh, about yeah a couple who can't have children and then find a snow child and, and or a child made of well, did, yeah, they make a child out of snow and then it comes to life. Uh, or, or does it? Dot, dot, dot. But um, <laughs> it's based on a Russian story called The Snow Queen, I believe, but, uh, re- rewritten as a snow child. And it's very, very moving. I uh, really loved it. Um, yeah, so I'll talk about other examples later. But in my, my broad feeling in general is, if yeah, if, someone, if it's a modern retelling, then I'm intrigued. If it's a contemporary retelling, maybe less so. What about you? What are your first thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I, I would largely agree, actually. And I think that you, you've put that very well. Because for me, I don't see the point in rewriting something that's set at the same time and just telling it from a different character's perspective. Because I mean, mm. I'm like, okay, well, great. But I'm still in the same time frame. I'm still dealing with the same set of belief systems, etc. And I feel a little bit like a lot of those things are being done now by writers who are like, I'm reclaiming the woman's voice in this story. Mm, it's like, mm. yeah, that's great. And as a feminist, I 100% support that. But here's an idea. Why are we taking a, a patriarchal myth and trying to make it feminist when we could just write a book about a woman anyway? Um, yeah. <laughs> so I don't see the point. Um, I also fi- think, you know, what trying to, to sort of write something um, – set at the same time as these myths and so on and so forth that's not that interesting to me um I don't I mean I know it's terrible but I just don't find that period of history interesting at all so yeah you know I it's just something that's never appealed to me whereas taking a a myth and retelling it for a modern audience and kind of using the themes and ideas and using them to show us how the, the world hasn't changed that much and um, being quite inventive with it. So, um, I mean, not that I've actually read 
them, but I know that there was a series that was done a few years ago, so where contemporary authors were commissioned to to rewrite some of the Greek myths, and and I thought that was a really interesting way of doing it and thinking about okay, well, if I were this character in, in modern day, then then what would I do? And I, I find that interesting when um, particularly the Greek kind of dramatists and and those sort of stories like the mythical stories of things like Medea and um those stories that you just think gosh I can't imagine how anyone how any of these they're not realistic they they don't feel like that these um that these would be true stories that these would be things that people would ever be compelled to do but then taking those stories and putting them into a situation where actually you can see that these things would happen in a world that you recognise. It makes you look at the original text with a completely fresh eyes and a new understanding and a new sympathy with people living in a time that feels very far away and it helps you to to make them feel more immediate. And I think that's what's missing from the retellings of stuff that is set at the same time because you've still got that huge gulf of, of time that separates you from the characters in a way, I suppose. Uh, the world. Yeah, I think it was. Oh, sorry. No, carry on. I say, was that the the Canongate Myth series? Yeah, because um, yeah, the only one I read was, in fact, the Penelope ad by Margaret Atwood, and that was exactly what you were saying. Like, let's look at this from the women's point of view, specifically Penelope's, of course. Um, and yeah, I I mean, I thought it was all right, but I think yeah, I, I, as you're saying, I would find it much more interesting. Well, I'm in danger of saying I'd find the, uh, the the Odyssey more interesting if it was made contemporary, because that opens one up to Ulysses by James Joyce, does it not? And that is not a book that I uh, was enamoured by. But again, I was I was 18 when I read it, so who knows? Maybe I'd love it now. Um, though, what you were saying there about taking these things into the modern world and, and seeing what would happen made me think of... Uh, two novels that they're not quite retellings but they're more basically the idea of what would happen if a greek goddess generic greek goddess uh was in contemporary world just like impossibly beautiful and serene and all that sort of thing uh zilika dobson by max beerbaum from 1910s ish uh and uh introduction to sally by elizabeth von arnim from i think the 30s 2030s um and in, in the Zilek Dobson, it's I guess a farce where you know every undergraduate falls in lo- in Oxford falls in love with her and then they all drown themselves in the in the river, and <laughs> it's it's it plays into the absurdity of myth in a contemporary then contemporary landscape and and yeah that then leans more into farce, whereas Introduction to Sally I found really interesting from it's sort of reclaiming that agency for for women or at least looking at the women's role even. Um, without having a particularly she's not empowered in any way it's just thinking what's it like for a woman to to be treated as though she, her beauty was the most important thing about her uh and you know you still have the men falling over themselves to, to want to marry her but you see much more of how she finds that tiresome and bewildering i guess yeah. uh so yeah they're, they're both i think they're not really retellings of myths exactly but they feel like they yeah, they feel like they're translating a, a central part of a myth that's not, not really questioned. Like, uh, yeah, the beauty of a goddess in mythology is not really queried, and and seeing how that would work uh, in the you know tens, twenties, thirties. That's really interesting. I've not read Introduction to Sally. That is that one of your um, British Library ones? It's in discussion at the moment. <laughs> uh, currently, it's not. It's quite hard to find actually at the moment. But it's, I think it's. 
it's one of the few of her books actually that hasn't been reprinted and I think it is very good so uh, fingers crossed keep fingers crossed on that one and I didn't know that that's what Zulika Dobson is about so there we are I've had an education thank you ah yes uh yeah it's a it's a weird one it's very um of its time <laughs> but uh and, and quite silly but but I thought it was fun it's one I often see in second-hand bookshops actually so it must have been very popular at the time yeah uh, yeah and I think it's interesting that there's times in history when that kind of wanting to retell stories of Greek myths becomes very popular. And I wonder why that is, because it seems to be a real trend in literature at the moment, that longing. Yeah. I mean, I wonder, yeah, I don't know. Um, Because, yeah, as you say, there's, well, I mean, partly I guess it's because Song of Achilles was so successful that lots of people were inspired to do similar things perhaps, but or maybe Mary Beard's success is is the answer. But uh, I did read The True Heart by Sylvia Turns and Warner that is, apparently a retelling of the cupid psyche myth but i don't know what the cupid psyche myth is other than in the very loosest outline so it was completely lost on me but i enjoyed it i mean this is my problem is that i have zero knowledge of greek myths so even if i were reading a book and you know unless it was stamped on the front cover if if it were were based around a greek myth i'd have absolute no idea Um, (laughs) and i I think it's a shame really because we don't mean we don't really get taught that anymore um in school or anything and when you think that for you know, most of the of human history that that would have been a kind of certainly for educated people would have been just part of everyday parlance, and you just know these stories like, you know, just be part of your cultural background. And now, you know, you've really got to be into it to know them. I think. Yeah, we we watched a series of videos on them in my middle school, but I think they were probably quite sanitized for for the audience. Um, so, but yeah, again, I've only got sort of loosest, you know, knowing who Theseus and the Minotaur sort of thing were, rather than they tended to zero in on the exciting bits of a story, I guess, rather than the overall arching of who was related to whom and why yeah. what, such and such happened. Because there was, was there's a lot of uh, inter interrelating going on between them, isn't there? There is, and you know, there's the Roman ones and the Greek ones, and it's just like, oh, for goodness sake, I can't keep track of all these people. So, <laughs> um, it's, yeah, it's very complicated. But I, I think, um, like when you mentioned the Snow Child and thinking about fairy stories, I do find that really interesting retelling mm-hmm. stories and particularly taking fairy stories from other cultures that we might not be familiar with and retelling them. Um, there's a real sort of interest, I think. In, in that genre in Russian fairy tales and Eastern European fairy tales I think maybe because the, you can set them in lovely sort of wintry forests and things um, but not that I've read any actually I mean I've come up with okay. <laughs> not read any of them because that sort of thing I don't feel necessarily that excited by I'm not really I never really was a fairy stories person even as a child um, but what I do find interesting is novels that use a a piece of literature as the basis of their story so something like Wide Sargassi Sea which is a retelling of Jane Eyre from the perspective of Bertha Rochester um, which I just think is is one of the most amazing novels of the 20th century and um, I really enjoyed um, Longbourn by can't think of the name of the author Joe Baker, is it? Yes, Joe Joe Baker, yes, which is a retelling of Pride and Prejudice from the perspective of the servants, which I thought was such a clever angle to relook at this story that we all Mm. know, so many of us know so well. And what's so interesting is that you see the characters 
I mean, actually, the characters don't, other characters don't really focus that much because you also see that kind of complete separation of the servants' world from the world of the girls. And all mm. of them, it's like two different sets of people living in the same house with completely different priorities and interests and, and lives. But you also see the girls from a very different perspective. And somebody who seems very kind and gentle in their social world maybe isn't so much to the people that are below them. And, you know, it just made me think, oh, okay, that's, I've not, not really thought about it like that before. And I just thought it was very well written. And the same with Wide Tug yeah. you know, thinking about, you know, when you read Jane Eyre and, and you, you see Bertha Rochester and perhaps you don't think about, you know, her perspective because you're very much on Jane's side, I suppose, and, and you think, oh, yes, well, you know, perhaps Mr. Rochester was, you know, is not fair, you know, she's a madwoman, you know, Mr. Rochester's right to keep her locked up in there or whatever, whatever you might be thinking on first reading. And then you read this book and you think, oh, my goodness, did he drive her to it? And then yeah. suddenly at the end of Jane Eyre, if you go back and reread, you start thinking, oh, my goodness, Jane is now stuck in a in a weird mossy house, in a dell, Um with this man who, um, you know, uh, who she spends all her time with and never needs to see anyone else. And mm-hmm. then you start thinking, like this is all. <laughs> um, and yeah, so it's, it just makes you think, you know, someone else has seen something in this book that I didn't see. And it's now making me rethink my whole perspective on it. And it's interesting that those retellings, when they're responding to one specific novel by an author that everyone knows who it is, uh, it feels so much more like a conversation or than you know Greek mythology or fairy tale. Even if there's a well-known version by Hans Christian Andersen or by the Brothers Grimm, that it's still they feel like they're you know oral history and they've all, always been slightly adapted and shaped, and it's much more, I guess, picking from a from a shared pool rather than saying. Yeah, I'm looking at this one specific narrative and responding to it, um, which is maybe why I think it's r- riskier. Those two examples, you get, I've not read Longbourn, but yeah, White Tiger is obviously a big success, but then you get any number of failures in in that world. And the novel that it responds to has to be significant enough that people want to read a retelling of it. I guess no one's going to do a retelling of a novel that no one's heard of. Um, yeah, quite right. That being, yeah. Uh, and I was thinking about fairy tales as well, uh, and as long as well as the Snow Child. Another couple I came up with was um, I re- well, I read the Juniper Tree by Barbara Cummins, but I did actually finish it without knowing the Juniper Tree was a fairy tale, and I still don't really know what the Juniper Tree is about. So I certainly missed uh, the nuance of that. But it, but it did feel it was weird reading it. There's the sort of moments in it that feel much too dramatic for a normal novel, and it's only afterwards I thought well, that makes more sense because it's responding to some murder or something, I forget, uh, that happens in Juniper Tree. That's a real <laughs> real detailed analysis there. But uh, the the other one um, was that I read last year was A Wild Swan, which is a collection of short stories by Michael Cunningham. Uh, and I re- really love Michael Cunningham. But this one I didn't think was quite as successful. It's thing, he, he, again, is it's a bit like Wild Swan. As you see, he's looking at the, um, the uh, motivation for for characters who are often overlooked, like the witch in Hansel and Gretel, what's her backstory? Or yeah. um, what? why was the prince cursed in Beauty and the Beast? Uh, did What's the giant's point of view in Jack and the Beanstalk? That sort of thing. Yeah. And I think uh, all of which is uh, 
uh, a nice idea in theory, I guess, but I think we've got to the point where that's so expected of fairy tales to to look at them from another angle. And even though I couldn't think of any other specific retellings that I had read, I don't know, it just feels like they're there threaded through. I think Roald Dahl did some. I think there was a BB series they did some. It's just the idea that you'd tell us fairy tales straight and normal was just that just wouldn't happen now. So uh, the retellings where you're thinking about the traditional ogre or traditional witch as somebody uh, with their own motivation and own, own rationale um, just needs, I just, yeah, it's not, in, not interesting anymore, maybe unless it's done really brilliantly. And the, these stories were just fine, I guess. Yeah. I, it's interesting how quickly something that, that feels fresh and new becomes just a bit cliched. Yeah. And I think Helen Oyemi is a good person at making things feel more new because she doesn't, I think gingerbread probably is obviously links to Hansel and Gretel. Uh, but lots of her stories feel like they're about fairy tales, even if they're not. Or she just like takes bits and pieces from different uh, folk tales and fairy tales from different cultures and sort of melds them and picks pieces. And that I didn't always get on with her writing. I sometimes find it a bit too confusing. Like Gingerbread, I had no idea what was going on. But but it does feel fresh, at, the, at least. It doesn't feel tried and tested. And I think sometimes her experimentalism goes too far and doesn't doesn't quite cohere. But it's I guess it's better to go too far that way than not far enough in this retelling sphere. Well, quite. I mean, if you're going to do it, do it properly, you know. Yeah, give it a go. Yeah. Okay, so what side of the debate are you going to come down on? I'm going to say I am pro retellings, etc., uh, at least in theory, although maybe choosier in practice than I am with some of the things I say yes to. I feel like that's How about you. you. Is that you in a nutshell? <laughs> 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 yeah, you know me, dis- discerning. Well, books for the discerning reader is your blog strapline says. It is, my neglected blog. Um, I would say I am, I do like retellings, um, but yeah, I think under specific circumstances, I'm more of a literature retelling person than I am of other types of things, but that's because they like I like reading things that make me feel clever, so. <laughs> yeah. um, great. Uh, well, it's just a nice woolly answer to a very woolly question. <laughs> that hopefully by the time people receive this, I will have found a way to phrase into five words or fewer. Yeah. Um, uh, we did have a question, although it was, it, was, it was a blog comment and they didn't give their name, but hopefully they do listen to the podcast and we'll hear it asked, even if I can't, don't know who to attribute it to. But it was basically, where do we buy most of our books? Oh, good question. Yeah. Um, sorry, that's my last biscuit. I'm just going to finish. <laughs> you've kept, you've made them go for a good half hour. I'm impressed. Yeah. Um, I would say most of my books are bought from charity shops. Okay. And then, when I'm looking for a book in particular, so a particular edition of something, or because I'm quite fussy about what edition of book I want especially if it's like by a favourite author or I'm collecting a particular series or something or, you know, I I like having sort of first editions of things with dust jackets and so on. I will normally get them from eBay. Um, But it is if I'm desperate for something. But, um, Mm. or like I keep an eye out, you know, like I always check every now and again to see whether something's come up that I'm looking for. Um, Or secondhand bookshops, they... 
in London, there, there are few and far between these days. A lot of the good ones have shut down or got smaller over the years. Um, so online, really, for rare stuff and then charity shop for every day. And then if there's something new's come out, I'll get it from Waterstones. That's me. Yeah. Um, I think I'm probably mostly online now is that true i mean if I, I i i guess throughout the year i buy things online more often but if i go to a secondhand bookshop i'll buy a big pile of them so the, i don't don't go to that many because as well if you think there are few and far between in london outside of london it's even worse so mm-hmm. there's yes there's very few in oxfordshire there is a brilliant one in wantage that i always get a big pile from but i mean there's no secondhand bookshops in oxford which is ridiculous I mean, that, um, it's like it it shouldn't be true I know of all places. There's a couple new bookshops that have little secondhand um, sections, but uh, but yeah, the, when I moved there, there were seven, I think, secondhand bookshops, um, and they've they've all disappeared. And um, there's charity bookshops around, but uh, and you know they're great, but they're not not quite the same. Um, and yeah, I mean, I almost never buy new books for myself, so maybe I'll buy one or two a year uh, for myself. Um, and then I guess a lot of the books I read, I buy on Audible now, so. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I'm very impressed by how you can do audiobooks because I just can't. Um, yeah, so only really in the car or when I'm on a walk. But I don't read well now that my eyes are back to normal. I don't really do it do it at, um, at home very often. But yeah, uh, and then I do use ABE a lot, and I know that I shouldn't because they're owned by the evil people. But um, you know what? Since Amazon rescued Neighbours, I'm much more forgiving about their <laughs> malicious practices. What's well, so it's Neighbours back? It's going to be back in September. It's coming back. Oh, you must be overjoyed. I was thrilled. I couldn't believe it. Uh, <laughs> it's been a re- last year was such a roller coaster year to be a Neighbours fan. Hit <laughs> <laughs> through. Well, thank you, anonymous person, for that question. Hello, it's Simon from the future to say that that question was from Lisa. She did uh, claim it after we recorded. So thank you, Lisa. If you've got a question, do get in touch at teaorbooks at gmail.com. And whilst I'm here, you can support the podcast on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash teaorbooks if you would like. Hello, Hargreaves. You can't have Hargreaves, but you can have uh, various different additional features and you'll get the episodes uh, a couple of days early. Back to the second half. And on to, as Rachel says, two chunky books that I did listen to both as audiobooks, and they were um, both over 18 hours, I think, but uh, not when you listen to them on time to speed. Rachel, yes. what, would you like to, what would you like to introduce us to? Um, can I do uh, South Riding, please? You can. Let's go chronologically. So I, I'll do Ruth. Um which was published in 1853 by well-known Victorian novelist Elizabeth Gaskell. Ruth uh, is, well, as I, as I wrote, I think on Twitter, Ruth cannot catch a break. Things <laughs> do not go well for our Ruth. <laughs> she's an orphan. She's already impoverished and neglected and such. Uh, and it looks like she might have a bit of a good future when through her skills as a seamstress, she manages to meet an aristocratic man called Henry Bellingham. Uh, and they uh, become friends and maybe more than friends. And he abandons her while she's pregnant, at which point she's taken in by uh, a lovely vicar man called Mr. Benson and his sister, who is less keen, but warms to her. And then uh, 
there's sort of this, I mean, there's not actually that much plot in what is a very long novel, but uh, she becomes a governess for some children, and she, uh, um, I guess, tries to atone for for her youthful folly. And there's a few ups and downs along the way, but most of it is basically about the power of her virtue. There we are. Very well. Um, yes. <laughs> Over to you for a book that came out 80 years later. Mm. So South Riding um, is by Winifred Holtby, who is probably these days more famous for being um, friends, some might say more than friends, with Vera Britton um, of Testament of Youth fame. Um, and this is a novel, and in the introduction to the edition by Shirley Williams, who is the daughter of Vera Britton, Apparently, the only um, novel, English novel, dealing with local government, or certainly was. Is that right? Okay. I mean, there's some uh, of that in Ruth for, for starters, but. Yeah. It deals solely with local government, according to Shirley Williams. So I'm oh, right, sure. solely. Hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure that I would necessarily agree with that, but um, it is a novel that starts and opens in a, in a meeting of, of councillors in a, in a local area and um, talking about the various issues in that area and then we sort of zoom out from there into the lives of the inhabitants of the South Riding and a part of Yorkshire in the 1930s and it's seen largely through it's one of actually I think quite a successful novel in having a multitude of of main characters but I would say it's probably mainly seen through the eyes of Mrs Beddoes who is an alderman so she's in a position of authority in the council she's in her 70s and her attempts to carry out change and support the people of the South Riding, including Robert Kahn, who is um, a gentleman farmer who has had a pretty tragic life and is struggling to to keep going. And um, Sarah Burton, who arrives in the South Riding to be the high school teacher, who is someone that, that Mrs. Beddoes champions, but who Robert Kahn doesn't. And um, that all leads to conflict and to tragedy also. Um, and also you it sweeps into the lives of the poor and needy of the neighbourhood and looking at what might improve their lives and a very clear-eyed view of what it means to basically try and bring about improvements to people's lives and the different ways in which people's own desires and, um, I suppose, selfishnesses uh, impact on bringing about change uh, and social justice um, in what was then, you know, a post-war world about to go into another one. So that was very rambly, but it's quite <laughs> difficult. It's a very difficult novel to put in a box, actually. I find it really difficult to summarise because, number one, it's incredibly long, but also there are so many different strands to the story and it's about mm. a lot of things. And I'm really interested that you single out Mrs. Bellows as the main character because she would have been maybe like fourth or fifth on my list uh, in my head. To me, Sarah Burton seems to be the main character, um, which I do have. Well, maybe we'll launch into this now. I have quite strong feelings about about, about this (laughs) while I was reading it. Um, It's your first time reading it. It is my first time reading it. In fact, it's my first time reading any novel by her. I've read some of her nonfiction, but I've not read any of her novels before. and I guess the clue is in the titles of these two books. Ruth is mostly about Ruth. South Riding is mostly about South Riding. And so it is a community and it's not an individual. But what I found was that she was she tried to balance 
well, I thought Sarah Burton being a protagonist. Obviously, not everyone see, responds to it that way. Uh, but if, if Ultimate didn't quite balance the massive characters and trying then to have them as leading characters, and there was just too much in it. There's so much. And she was dying as she was writing it, so maybe it was just she wanted to get everything down. Uh, she knew it would be her last book. But I just... I found it so overwhelming. There were so many people we were meant to care about that I just, and I just kept losing track of who they were. So for me, like Sarah Burton and Khan, um, which I don't actually know how you spell Khan. In my head, it was K A H N, but I guess it probably wasn't. No, it's K A N E. Ah, okay. Because yeah. oh, um, of, yes. of audio. So I was, yeah. Um, yes, because in my head, I was, he started off, I thought he might be a. Um, Indian or something with Selim Khan, but no, that he's just got C A R N E. It's not Indian, um, but yeah, uh, it was. I just found it too much. <laughs> I don't know. What do you think? Gosh, I wasn't expecting you to say that. <laughs> well, I thought I'd love it, and I—I I mean, there were bits of writing. Sorry, I'm just going to keep going. There were, there were bits that I thought were beautiful. There's a, is it a character called Lily? Is it who's dying? Yes, uh, and the she's not dying of the same thing that Winifred Hopley was dying of, but the way she wrote about mortality and illness was absolutely beautiful, but had nothing to do with anything that came either side of it. And well, of course it uh, did. did. Did it? I mean, it was, I just felt like I was kept being plunged into different novels and they didn't cohere into one novel. Gosh. Okay. Well, Defend it. Go on. Well, maybe if you want to, I don't know if you yeah, love the book or not. Definitely. I do think it's an absolute tour de force. Um, and I would say it is uh, an absolutely magnificent novel in its scope and its ability to explore the tragedy and the futility of, of many people's lives. And I think it's um, that juxtaposition of so many different characters all jostling alongside each other. She really kind of brings to life that sense of people who, you know, what it is to live alongside other people. It's a real socialist novel. And how everybody's actions impact on everybody else around them and she manages to do that without moralizing which I think is very skillful and she doesn't tell us what to think or how to feel at any point and she just presents us these characters in their lives and we are drawn into them and we care about them and it's yeah okay maybe it doesn't hang together perfectly as a as a novel but it's not supposed to be it's a slice of life it's a life isn't neat and tidy and these people's lives aren't neat and tidy and Mrs Beddoes I think is sort of the thread that runs through it in terms of that she's the person who is has got sort of oversight of everything and is is part of each community and going in and out of the different communities and she's got her own personal tragedies um and she's trying to improve these lives but gradually as the novel progresses, you as the reader realise, as she comes to realise, that it's something that can never be done because life will always be messy. People will always make stupid decisions. You can give people financial aid and they'll go to the pub and drink it straight away. You will have someone like Lydia, for example, who's a 14-year-old girl who's got a scholarship to go to high school and, and make something of herself, but then her mother dies in childbirth and she's got to stay at home and look after the children. And Oops, so her spoilers. Spoilers, sorry, but it does happen quite early on. Um, it's a 600-page novel, so I think that's <laughs> early on. So, and you see all this kind of like, you know, it's it's life. Life doesn't work out for people a lot of the time. And I think it's a real 
beautiful novel in not shying away from the truth of that and it is very depressing in places but it's also got hope in it and I think Sarah Burton's an incredible character um I saw a lot of myself in her actually and it's a kind of you know I just in this when they're in she's in the hotel with Robert Kahn I mean oh my goodness it's just awful can I come back on a couple of things you've said before you get swept away? <laughs> Just because I, uh, uh, I mostly agree with you that she manages not to moralise, but the epilogue, she suddenly loses it all and just puts in this massive speech about, in case you didn't work it out, here's what you should think. And I thought that was a real shame. But for the most part, I agree with you uh, there. But the other fact, I, think, I mean, you're saying that life is messy and therefore the novel is messy. And I think the, the craft of a novelist, particularly if they're building this community, is to convey the messiness of life without making it a messy reading experience. And obviously you didn't find it that, and millions of people haven't found it. It's a very popular novel. But for me, it just, I just, we kept zeroing in on these people and getting, you know, and yeah, Sarah Burton, wonderful character. I loved how much richness there was in um, her, you know, sometimes her complete lack of self-confidence, but in other things she knew how capable she was. And she'd have been a wonderful protagonist of a novel called Sarah Burton. But um <laughs> I don't know, for me, I, I felt like she, well, I mean, obviously we disagree, but I, I don't, I couldn't uh, see that she was balancing the the depth and the breadth. It didn't, they, they, they just seemed out of kilter to me. Well, I mean, I disagree entirely, but I respect your opinion. Um, <laughs> I can see why you thought, and I, and I recognise that, but to me it didn't matter because I wanted, I was so interested in everybody that I, I wanted I wanted to go back into each of their lives and see little bits of them. And I felt that the characters were so realised that I could imagine what was going on in the bits that I didn't see. So it didn't bother me. And you always remembered who they all were. Yeah. You're a better woman than I am. I'm, I'm a man, I guess. <laughs> you got to, so you, again, maybe you're just remembering a whole class of characters. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, let's, let's, we're not just going to talk about South Riding. Ruth. Um, has there ever been a novel so devoid of humour? <laughs> I don't yeah. necessarily mean that as a criticism. Uh, it's just, I think in her other novels, particularly in Cranford, there is humour uh, mm-hmm. uh, threaded through the tragedies and realities. Uh, and she obviously just made a decision, not apart from one maid who's quite funny, or housekeeper or whatever she is, just relentlessly earnest and grim, but at the same time, I thought quite brilliant. Thoughts? <laughs> oh, Ernest and Grimm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm going to be blurbed on the back of the next edition, I think. I mean, tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, pick it up now, everyone. <laughs> um, so I didn't reread it for this because I haven't still finished self writing, but um, I read it when I was at university as part of a course on Dickens and Eliot and Gaskell funnily enough so we read a good chunk of each of their novels and I remember reading Ruth and when I started I was quite excited because I'd read a lot of novels about the fallen woman and usually they're killed off within the first five minutes and I was like oh my goodness this is you know maybe Ruth is going to make a success of her life and this is going to be a big in your face to all of those horrible people in the 19th century who basically think that 
if a woman gets pregnant outside of wedlock, then she might as well just be thrown on the dust heap. I'm like, wow, Elizabeth is really, you know, get, sticking a finger up to the man here. She's she's really doing something. And then gradually as the novel wears on and you're like, seriously, how many bad things can happen to one person? Yeah. <laughs> and we won't spoil the ending, but yes. Uh... And I was then, you get to the end and it's like, right, okay, so basically you are just saying what everyone else is saying then. Um, and I really struggled with it because I was like, look, she's like, she's a really good person, but a little bit too good, a little bit too sick. Yeah. Good old Ruth. Nothing gets her down. Um, and it's just like, it, it just feels like it just, to me, it felt like a, a one long preach with a very sort of thin story over the top. And I just thought, I don't believe that, th- that this could happen to this person. And therefore you're just use, I can see you using this to teach me something. And that for me, isn't a good novel. Which I find really interesting because um, I'm very willing to, to have a novel teach me something. And, and I sort of assumed you were, but I'm sure you've said you are in other books you've done, but oh, uh, I, I, I t- but I don't want to be preached at. I guess I mean I don't mind being preached at. I guess I yeah. Oh, stop it, Hargreaves. Um, I don't want to be attacked though, Hargreaves. Uh, I I th- yeah, and I mean I think why I don't mind it in Ruth is it's very overt. It's not pretending not to be preachy. It's openly quoting the Bible quite a lot. Uh, and I did like how sh- she looked at the reality of faith and how it applied to. Her. Um, real life situations. I kept waiting for someone to say let him, him and that sin cast the first stone, but it didn't didn't quite come up. It would, would have been a perfect uh, section of scripture to quote. But um, yeah, I think you're right that her complete goodness made it feel a little too much like, and she is the exception. Uh, she's so good that she can mm-hmm. overcome what she did. Uh, and it's not. I mean, she doesn't ignore the fact that a man was involved, and he is also guilty. And but in that society, he gets away with it. So I think there is. You know, it's not um, like some of the fallen women novels, where, in my opinion, at least, where the reader is meant to think the woman deserves everything she gets. It is. Uh, I mean, it might be a much bit much to call it a feminist novel, but but it's more feminist than a lot of similar books. At the same time. Uh, yeah. I mean, yeah. I I wouldn't disagree with that. I think you know she's she's certainly trying to do something different with a familiar narrative, and she's trying to show that you know everything w- women shouldn't be blamed for what yeah. men do them essentially, and and that is quite powerfully feminist at the time because you know in the nineteenth century it was very much it was the woman who was to blame for allowing herself to be in that position in the first place, um, forgetting that there was a man in the equation altogether. So I think there's a you know that there is a real kind of reformist zeal within the novel and knowing Elizabeth Gaskell as a person and the other sorts of novels that she's written you know very much like Winifred Holtby she is a socialist writer I would say mm-hmm. that but where where Winifred Holtby creates a whole cast of very believable characters to whom bad things happen but not in a kind of relentless way that makes you feel like you're watching in a Christmas episode of East End <laughs> <laughs> relentless is a good word yeah yeah and then you know that it's like come on there's got to be some kind of shining light for this woman and and there's nothing and so it's just sort of you know you just think oh, i can't i just can't go on like i don't want to keep reading because i'm i don't want to read any more of this dirge of this awful life <laughs> and i think that's where humor 
I could have lifted it because I mean I, I really enjoy a lot of Elizabeth Gaskell's novels I think she's a really really good writer and I think actually she's kind of for some reason fallen by the wayside in terms of 19th century authors I know that you know she's had some of her stuff been made into period dramas Cranford for example which is, is mm, quite mm. unusual in her body of work in being so overtly humorous um and yet she's she's never sort of become a household name, I think, in a way that like the Brontes have. Um, and I'm not quite sure. And I, I wonder whether, I think out of all the Brontes, she's an Anne. And yeah, because I think, yeah, there's something very still quite modern about Jane Eyre mm. and about the people in Wuthering Heights, for, for better or worse. But yeah, Anne is a good comparison because I think people just don't have an appetite for moral story, moralistic or moral stories in the same way they used to. Um, no, absolutely, and it feels very old-fashioned. It feels very Victorian in its preoccupation with this moral, very religious dilemma um, that obviously isn't really one that we are preoccupied with today. I mean, if we're thinking about making a comparison to Anne Bronte, I mean, the tenant of Wildfell Hall and the idea of, you know, domestic violence and things depressing me, that still is a very pertinent issue so perhaps we wouldn't we we'd read the tenant of welfare hall and, and not feel quite the same way but this feels like it feels like a period piece in a way that doesn't make it necessarily engaging as a novel despite i will say the very good quality of the writing and i think it's interesting you've alluded to it and there's a couple examples uh, in south riding of women getting pregnant outside of marriage mm. um well or having sex outside of marriage there's yeah, a couple of characters where there is that dilemma and what I thought was interesting reading the two books sequentially is that it's still a big issue, but it's no longer really a moral issue between that person and God, uh, which is very much alive there as well as a societal judgment in Ruth. It's become much more about scandal and community. And the, the in South Riding, what is wrong is largely what offends a community or what gets you an outcast and people have you know firm zeal for their political viewpoints but uh but outside of politics if you're looking at social issues it's much more about what yeah scandal than it is about um righteousness i guess and that was that i thought was an interesting contrast yeah absolutely and, and while i think you know scandal has a role to play in ruth because the two, mm-hmm. the two can't be separated really i don't think but in South riding it's it's sort of there's a kind of inevitability about it and also there's not there's no shame in terms yeah, of you get the sense that if people aren't find out found out about something then that it doesn't matter like this yeah. there's no other like in ruth as you say the scandal is huge but uh but yeah in south riding if people get away with something that's the last they think of it yeah and and the the character who who you're referring to i won't say more about it because it is a bit of a, a surprise when you read it you know that that's an opportunity to get something out of the situation rather than to be horrified at being in the situation mm-hmm. which I thought was really interesting as well um so yeah I mean it's a shame really because Ruth could be a really great novel if Elizabeth Gaskell had had a bit of a sense of humor about it um and yeah, I kept 
I kept thinking about other Victorian novelists who could have written it. I thought Trollope would have done a brilliant job with that story because it oh. would have been funny and would have also had the, you know, he his books are keenly moral and they often have characters who are very moralistic, but his dryness of humour would have really lifted it and made it feel less of uh, less relentless. Yeah, and I, I like to think if Mary Elizabeth Braddon had written this, Ruth would oh, yes. <laughs> and she would have killed... Um, whoever got her pregnant and it yeah. would have been very different and much more enjoyable. It would then life. have turned out to be her own brother or something, but yeah, yes. Exactly. It would have... um, I mean, someone needs to write that novel. Please do. Yes. <laughs> Maybe I'll do I mean, Mary Elizabeth Radham wrote a lot of books I don't know anything about. She probably did, right? Something along these lines. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I've only ever read Lady Audley's Secret, but... Um, yeah, me too. I'm, I'm making that... I thought she was prolific, but maybe I've just made that up. I don't think, actually, that she was. I'm lying to people. Somebody might be along to tell us that we're both being idiots. Yeah, I'm looking it up on Wikipedia. Let's have a look. Work. She was a prolific writer with more than 80 novels. There we go. Neither of us know what we're talking about. (laughs) The only one that anyone's read is Lady Audley's Secret. Um, I'm sure there's more to say about South Riding. It's 20 novels worth. What else else would you like to say about it? Um. I think what I would like to say about it is that it's a novel that is full of truth and full of hope. And I think it's a very, what I find immensely moving about the reading experience is also knowing that Winifred Holtby was dying when she was writing it. Mm. And, you know, we always have to try and separate the writer from the, from the work and all that sort of thing. But I think, with this novel you can't really separate that context from it you're thinking about this this woman who's who's trying to i suppose express her her feelings and her belief systems and her you know her manifesto as a person into something that will last before she dies and for me that just makes it incredibly poignant um but it's also a novel that shows her immense love for humanity and the humans that she would have grown up with. I mean, she was from Yorkshire herself. I mean, the South Riding isn't actually, for people who are listening, you aren't British, you might not know this, it's not actually a real area. Um, it, there isn't a place actually called the South Riding anymore. There used to be, but there, there isn't anymore. But her love for that region and her kind of belief in normal people because the people who do have power in this novel, who are the councillors, etc., they are ordinary people. These aren't aristocrats. These aren't, you know, politicians. They're just ordinary members of the public who aren't paid for these roles. They're volunteer roles and whose job it is to be amongst the people, to be of the people and to be their voice and to enact change that's going to help them. And obviously some of them are corrupt, but some most of them are good. And I think that ultimate kind of faith in the goodness of humanity just kind of just sort of exudes out of the book. And I just find it a really beautiful expression of the essential goodness of humanity, which is also more kind of poignant when you think that it was written just a few years before World War II. So, um, yeah, I just think it's a beautiful novel and a, a wonderful example of, 1930s also um mindsets and ways of looking at the world it's it's like i said it's a very socialist novel and very evocative of the politics 
of that time when you're caught between an era of post-World War One of, of hope and change for the future, but also a fear that that future might well not happen. Sorry, that was very rambly. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'd feel cruel to respond to it now, so <laughs> I'll leave that lovely idea um, as the final thing we say about it, maybe. And I hope other people also see that in it. Now, I will say there were bits that I did really... But there were bit, many bits I loved, and, and if they had been five different novels, I would probably have loved each of those five novels. Uh, particularly the young girl who who loves literature so much and gets very excited about learning about it. That was nice. Um, I don't... I don't remember her name. Inidia, there we go. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so which of these two novels are you going to choose? Gosh, what a shock when I said <laughs> that after writing. And I will also <laughs> say for me, it's such a beautiful novel because it also, the character of Sarah Burton and what it means to be a teacher and what it means to teach is so well explored. And I love that. So, yeah. Um, and I don't think I particularly I loved either of these novels um but so the one yeah I know but the one I think was better as a novel is Ruth and that's the one I will choose I actually can't that you've done that <laughs> is this the end of the podcast <laughs> we did 113 episodes and we couldn't get any further I'm um, actually in shock to be honest <laughs> I mean both I mean both of them felt to me like they weren't particularly planned they just kept writing and seeing what happened but uh but, <laughs> but Ruth I thought it just showed more skill as a writer I'm sorry Winifred well, helped you, you write in to tell Simon how long he is That's how <laughs> this could be our biggest post bag um <laughs> I think it's much more likely that people will be on your side for this one but we'd be interested to know I know at least one person is reading them both especially for the podcast so uh Sarah let us know which one you prefer yeah, please say something. <laughs> um, and I'll share it next time if it's Ruth. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> hopefully we will have another episode in the future. And and the, if we do, the books that we will be reading are the short story collection Winter in the Air by Sylvia Townsend Warner and the novel A World of Love by Elizabeth Bowen. Wonderful. Looking forward to it already. Absolutely. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thank you. Bye. Bye.